0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am
1: delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to and the Oscar goes to... The
0: winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. We have a lot to talk about today, mostly television, as uh, the heat of Emmy eligibility season. Um, We're right in the middle of it, really. Um, A couple of movies that are coming out, including um, Richard's best movies of 2023 so far. Um, But we have a tiny bit of Oscar news to get into at the very start. Uh, This week, the Academy announced that the Oscars for 2024 will be on March 10th. Rebecca, you got the news first, and I assume you thought, oh, exactly the same as last year, basically.
1: Yep. Same thing. I mean, I was kind of thinking after a f- quite a few years of this date just like moving in dramatic ways, I'm okay with things being consistent for a little bit. I don't I don't yeah. know about everyone else. But yeah, March, March 10th, second Sunday of March, uh, it's the same as this past year, which I feel like we all feel like it's a little long by the time we hit February. But, um, you know, it is what it is. <laughs>
2: This is probably a dumb question that I should definitely know the answer to after, what, seven years of this podcast. (laughs) But,
1: like, why don't they do it earlier? Is there something
2: they're trying to get out of the way of? Or they just feel like they have to build in all this time for, like, the voting and the luncheons and all that stuff? Like, was it such a disaster when it was in February?
3: Part of it was always about making sure all the movies were seen and had the room to breathe. I mean, this is, like, from a while ago. Um, But I am interested in the date. You know, the function of the date now that they are going to be seemingly instituting some kind of theatrical requirement that wasn't there before, um, because that would, you know, theoretically change that math a little bit. But clearly, they don't think that it would impact when the show should air much.
0: Yeah, it makes you wonder if that announcement isn't maybe coming for this season or might not be as dramatic as it had been rumored, um, since that is all basically the same. I do
1: think, while I wouldn't mind a shorter season, if they move it earlier... The rest of these events just get so crammed together that it mm-hmm. it doesn't let them have any room to breathe or sort of feel that impact. Um, you know, we're already feel like dealing with several over a weekend um, as we get through it. So I, I just can't imagine the rest of those events. You know, shuffling closer and closer together. Yeah. Should we maybe have fewer events? Maybe fewer but. events. <laughs> what, Katie? <laughs>
0: I mean, and they keep us in business, so maybe we shouldn't complain too much. But. We need this ecosystem, let's be real. Uh, just some other dates that are thrown out there that you may have read by the time you hear this. But the Governor's Awards will be on November 18th, the weekend before Thanksgiving, same as this past year. The shortlist come out on December 21st, which to me is too close to the Christmas holiday when uh, I would like to be doing less work. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to complain too much. Um, and the nominations will be announced on January 23rd, which um, someone look up real quick if that's during Sundance, because that's usually the uh, the conflict that comes up with that. Fine. Otherwise, all um, pretty much as expected. And... Uh, you know, now we can all get our calendars in place for next year. And David and Rebecca, just go ahead and rent your formal wear now, um, <laughs> now you can plan your schedule accordingly. OK, let's go back to television, to the news of the moment, not looking so far in the future. Um, Rebecca, you had a scoop on Friday um, where you got a statement from the creators of Beef about the controversy that has been circling around David Cho, who... I did not know who he was before I watched Beef, but he had a, a long and colorful history in uh, Silicon Valley and the art world and everything else before he was on Beef. Um, do you want to run down where the controversy emerged from there? Sure. Um, yeah. So David Cho, I think he's
1: probably most well known as um, an artist who did the murals at Facebook in exchange for stock and then became super rich off of that. But he's also an actor and Apparently has you know relationships or friendships with Ali Wong and Stephen Yun, and he has a supporting role in beef um he plays this like troublesome cousin of stephen Yun's character um and so it's it's not a main role, but basically once the show came out, there was this backlash because David Cho had made um comments on a podcast uh nine years ago that he basically told a story where he of how he coerced this Masseuse into a sexual act and even the the person on the podcast with him says, So this is rape and and it was it's a really bad story that he tells. And since the you know, when that came out and then a few later obviously people were very upset and he released statements saying, you know, this was a fictional story I was telling for shock value, basically. Um, but it this resurfaced before beef that he apologized before for beef. Yeah. He apologized twice to dif- right after. And then a couple years later, there was a protest around um, an art installation he did. And he had a pretty, um, I think significant apology that he posted that time. But anyway, this is all, all resurfaced because the show has become so high profile. So, the creators had not said anything until this statement um, that we released. And uh, it's a short statement, but, you know, they they say we do not condone the story that David told and that it was fabricated and they understand why it's upsetting. Um, and that's where we're at at the moment. <laughs> it's this, It's a really messy situation, I think, because I think the show is an incredible show and You don't want it to be overshadowed by this, but we can't ignore that people are upset by what he said. So it's a it's a complicated one, I think. Do we
0: think that the statement's enough to keep it from overshadowing the show? Because that seems to be the goal, right? Like they want like the show is a hit. They want it to stand on its own legs and not be overshadowed by this thing that sort of has nothing to do with the show. Um, I kind of felt like the statement did a really good job of like distancing themselves from that, standing by the work that they've done and moving on. And um I'm curious if if you guys also think that it did enough.
3: Yeah, I I felt the same way um, as you, Katie. It's a very messy situation, but I think it's one that you can take a little bit separately from the show in that these things being resurfaced, like for me, I knew who he was. I didn't know this story before it resurfaced. So I think that's the primary function of all this controversy is to make people aware that, he said something incredibly disturbing and may have done something incredibly disturbing. And people should probably keep that in mind, uh, in terms of, you know, how he works and and operates in the future. But uh, in terms of the show, it doesn't really affect my personal relationship with it. Uh, I I don't think he's as directly involved. So it's, it's a little bit different. And I do think they did the right thing by putting something out. They probably waited a little too long, um, because that was really starting to overshadow the show. I think, Mm -hmm. um, but from what I can tell, it's quieted down a little bit over the weekend. It may just be because the show has been out for a little while now. But it seems like they at least got out what they needed to get out.
0: Although the show does seem, still seem to be trending. And, like, you know, in terms of breakout hits of the spring, it's really the, the only new one. So um, it's, it may be reaching more audiences on its own terms then, which is probably what they're hoping for.
1: Yeah, I do I do think uh, I wish the statement had come out earlier. I I do think that would have probably helped quiet this down quicker, but, um, you know, it would be a shame if it affected sort of the show's, I don't know, favor, especially when it comes to awards. Because I do think it it is such a strong show and, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to see something that is such a big deal for the Asian American community to sort of get hit with this backlash, so... I don't know. You can't, you know, the, the social media outrage machine will continue. And I, I don't think yes. this statement will quiet that down at all. But when you think about people who are actually voting and enjoying the show, I, I, I think that this statement should hopefully help them sort of move on and focus on the the, the work.
0: According to Netflix, uh, as between April 10th and April 16th, it was the second most uh, watched show uh, in English. Globally, I guess. I, like The Netflix numbers confuse me. But anyway, it's still um, a bona fide hit, which is TV should hope for in a season that's otherwise been dominated, like, almost entirely by Succession in terms of actual buzz. Not that there's anything wrong with talking about Succession, but, you know, this is the last season. We need, we need fresher hits. And I guess speaking of fresher hits, uh, David, you sold me and Rebecca both on The Diplomat, uh, mm-hmm. something that I don't think either of us actually ex- necessarily expected. And I don't know why it was flowing so under the radar for me until you said it's really, really good. But it's really, really good. It's also seemingly a hit on Netflix, right? David, as a diplomat expert, I'm going to let you take it from uh, here.
3: I am a diplomat expert. I should also <laughs> point people to Richard's review, which is really great and I think captures what's uniquely fun about the show in a way I didn't expect when I first watched it. But yeah, the show has been number one on Netflix every day since it premiered. And that includes... Today, we're recording on Monday. So that's a pretty instant hit, especially when you have a show like Beef kind of at the peak of its popularity going up against that. So it seems like Netflix has had the two breakout hits of the spring of new shows, um, which is definitely interesting to consider, given how we were talking about the streamer last year in terms of television, because uh, they just recently hit that one year anniversary of the big stock market crash and all that. Um, So we can get into that separately. But these two shows feel like what Netflix should be doing, which is high-concept, really entertaining, uh, star-driven shows that still have something specific and biting and fresh about them. And The Diplomat really fits into that. Uh, It comes from Deborah Kahn, who's a real veteran of political TV, like Homeland, and The West Wing, which had me expecting uh, a show that was more in line with, say, a Homeland. But the pilot immediately introduces itself in this really unusual tone that kind of has a little Shonda Rhimes, a little Aaron Sorkin, a little bit of that kind of homeland, um, more, more you know, melodramatic uh, geopolitical in our, drama. International relations. <laughs> yes, uh, yes exactly. so much is
0: on the verge. Like, everything is at stake in this. Yeah,
3: it opens with a big sort of explosive set piece, and it tells you, like, there will be a big global conflict uh that's driving this plot but then it really zeroes in on this marriage uh between carrie russell and rufus Sewell, who play diplomats and it's just a really fun dynamic between them that plays out over the course of the season in increasingly uh wild ways and surprising ways uh the show's i think really suspenseful really funny uh builds out a really good supporting cast and um it's just, it, it has a real hook that I think sustains through to the end.
1: I think it was the title that made me tune out yep, me too. immediately yeah. when yeah. you said it. I was like, oh, no, it is going to be another, you know, very serious global crisis show. And and I, I guess that was the reason I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch that. And then, of course, it it's definitely surprising the way they handled the tone. I really, really enjoyed it.
2: Maybe if they put an exclamation mark after
0: the (laughs) diplomat. Like Um, the informant.
1: Well,
2: my my weird little journey with that show was that I was supposed to review a different show that week, um, but on Sunday afternoon of that weekend... I was like, oh, I'll just watch The Diplomat for fun, because I do not watch screeners on my off time if I'm <laughs> going to be reviewing it. That's work time. Um, and I, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I just watched the entire season <laughs> in one sitting, so I have to like write about that now, for sure. Um, yeah, because I didn't really know anything about it, and when I was watching it, I was like, this feels like kind of Gray's, kind of West Wingy. like she's a little bit Carrie Matheson, and then I went to the Wikipedia, and I was like, oh, she wrote for all those shows. <laughs> That's, that. I was very, uh, It's it's not hard to suss that out, but I think another comparison I would would make, and I mean this favorably, um, I didn't put it in the review, but like Carrie Russell's performance is so good, it's it's kind of big and really high energy. And it made me think about Jennifer Aniston tearing into the material of the first season of The Morning Show and winning a SAG mm. award for it, Ooh. where it's just like, this is a mode we haven't seen this actor in. Carrie Russell has done intense stuff with the Americans. She's done lighter stuff. Felicity had its light stuff, obviously, too. But, like, this is a new sort of temper and, and sort of rhythm for her. And she seems very invigorated by the material and by the role. And that's really exciting to watch just an actor kind of go for broke and have it work out as well as it does.
1: Hmm.
2: There's
3: a scene with her uh, and Rufus Sewell, like, in a field, and they're just fighting. And the the performance she gives in this minute of just wailing is so funny and so real and raw um, that it just kind of crystallizes why she's so good in this show because it is such a big performance, like you say, Richard. But it's also really surprisingly grounded.
0: I was going to say about uh, Rufus Sewell because I was not an American's person, but obviously she and Matthew Reese run that show together. They are now married, so I think their chemistry was a huge part of that. And to repeat that, to have another show in which you are, you know, have an on-screen husband, you're trying to like build this relationship not with the person you're actually married to, and for that to work so well because they are really excellent together and without spoiling anything I think you said to me David like after the first episode you're like oh no is this show gonna like have them apart for most of the show and I think they very wisely it sounds like keep them together because that chemistry between them makes so much of the show
2: yeah no spoilers but yes the Sewell thing is fun I because when I was you know when I was first sort of aware of him he was always like the glowering villain and things you know yeah, yeah. like uh, the a holiday night, <laughs> a knight's tale and sure the holiday. Um and then years ago, I saw him on Broadway in Tom Stoppard's Rock and Roll. And it's this big, vivacious, kind of like friendly performance in a way. And he's not doing that same thing on the diplomat, but it is tapping into a sort of version of Sewell that I think we don't get to see often enough, which is a little livelier, a little lighter, mm-hmm. um, with still a little bit of that sort of wicked, you know, glint in his eye. But like, um, yeah, they they would seem like a very odd pairing on paper, maybe. But they really work well in this. Although it is funny that Sewell's playing an American surrounded by British people yeah. who get to speak in their normal accents. <laughs> I
0: know. Sometimes that's a real trap. Um yeah. it feels like he's navigating that pretty well.
2: And I should say speaking of the British aspect, there's a lot of Iannucci in there too. You know, mm-hmm. there's a sort of in-loop quality, this kind of zany British humor that I think is pretty well aped by an American, you know, production team.
0: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Well, I brought up uh, Matthew Reese earlier. um, And uh, David, you're really just having like an Americans uh, reunion You know that's one of my favorite shows ever, (laughs) so it's very appropriate. And I always feel embarrassed when I tell people I haven't watched it because it's one of those things that like, you know, maybe I'll get to it someday. Anyway, um, Matthew Reese is on Perry Mason, on HBO, and it's wrapping up its second season. And it has definitely taken off in a way that the first season did not, partly maybe because the first season aired in 2020 and everyone was insane. Um, But David, you had a great piece kind of wrapping up the second season. And I think similarly to you talking about the diplomat really sold me on what's been so special about this season.
3: Yeah, and one of the main differences between season one and season two is that they brought out more of Matthew Reese's humor. And you know, I interviewed him for the piece; he's an incredibly silly and funny guy. And you know, you could feel that kind of being tamped down a little bit in the first season, um, and they maintain that very irascible part of of the character in season two, but in a way that's more knowing and and clever. Um, And I think that's a huge reason why more people have responded to the show or maybe people have just responded in a new kind of way. Um, I remember when The Americans was on and you would see, you know, the show was very dark and there was not a lot of humor to it except in these very sort of black, subtle moments. But you'd see Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell like doing press and they would just be having the time of their lives. And it's nice to see two shows that are really allowing them to have fun. Mm. And for us, seeing how enjoyable it is for them to actually be able to enjoy themselves on camera more um because Perry Mason is you know you hear the title you think of the original show and the character and I don't think you necessarily expect this kind of it's a very atmospheric show it's really like drenched in 30s Los Angeles noir And
0: it was super violent at least in the first season right
3: Yeah and it's it's not it's 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 much tamer I would say in the second season and and it has a different kind of quality. Um, there's something almost sweeter about it. There's a romance um, between his legal partner and a screenwriter she meets. Um, it's a queer romance that really is kind of the beating heart of the season in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, I could just keep talking about this show, so I'll, I'll stop, <laughs> but uh, I hope people this watch it. This is a
1: Perry Mason podcast now. <laughs> yeah. Still watching Perry Mason.
0: Uh, well, Yeah, have you guys, Richard Rebecca, have you guys watched Perry Mason? I have not still. I, I was not. hesitant
2: to because I, I had seen the first season and then was like, oh, I don't remember anything that happened. But the good thing is like you can, you minus can, yeah. a couple things, like I think we talked about this a week or two ago, like yeah. you can watch this season, you know, sort of with fresh eyes. It's its, it's own story. But yeah, I've, I've really made my way through most of the season and it's it's just, I think for me being a lifelong East Coaster, I just don't really know L.A. history. Like, I know Hollywood history a little bit, I suppose, but, like, I don't really know about the formation of the city beyond what I've seen in, like, Chinatown, you know, the movie. And um, this is a nice kind of complement to that, where it's just, like, about how this massive city was built bit by bit by a lot of (laughs) nefarious people in in, in certain circumstances. And um, you're just sort of at a city at its, like, beginning of its boom, really. Even though the depression is happening, you know, Los Angeles is really just going to exponentially grow and grow and grow and grow in the the coming decades Mm -hmm. after when the show is set. And um, I find that all pretty fascinating. And um, yeah, it's beautifully rendered. Like, it's not exactly like a love letter to Los Angeles, but it's not not, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's taking a, a city that I think is thought of as one thing Specifically, Hollywood and showing all the dy- many dynamic other moving parts surrounding and supporting, and sometimes working in conflict with like the main sort of image of the city.
1: I gotta watch it. You too. <laughs>
0: The list is just so long. Well, we'll actually get to this in a second for why TV feels so overwhelming right now. But I wanted to talk about yet another new show that is still on my list. Um, Rebecca, you've watched more of Dead Ringers, um, the Amazon uh, Prime video series with uh, two racial vices uh, facing off against each other. Um, And it also seems a little like freaky and bloody, uh, which is maybe like Perry Mason, one of the things that's kept me away from it. But um,
3: Not as breezy, though.
0: Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's got two Rachel Vices, like which is a pretty strong selling point. So um yes. do you wanna sell me on it, Rebecca?
1: I think the two Rachel Vices and the writing of the show are the biggest selling points. I mean, watching her play these twins is totally fascinating. She's so talented and I think she really gets to display a lot of that in this these performances. Um and then the the first episode is a tough watch. I nearly didn't make it. There's a lot of like Birth trauma stuff. So for anyone that who's a mom, it's it's maybe extra hard to watch. But once you get through that episode, the second episode is one of my favorites. Um, so these two gynecologists or fertility experts are trying to create a fertility center that's women friendly, and so they they go to this rich investors like weekend getaway and. They're the like the worst rich people. Like they make the succession people look pretty decent. Uh, so <laughs> oh god. Um, and and the characters are just so rich, and the way that episode is written is really really impressive. So that one was one that really hooked me. Um, I don't think it's a show for everyone, but I think watching her performance and sort of the characters they've built uh, in this season really made it worth it
0: for me. Is this a drama or a limited series?
3: The limited series,
0: okay, because I was thinking about Carrie Russell in the drama actress race, which we, you know, had said was was uh, quieter than, and then suddenly got very crowded. Um, so Rachel Vice will be making the limited series race also more dramatic in that in the actress category.
2: And I think it, it's a good point to sort of take note of Alice Birch, who created yes. it. Um, mm-hmm. She's a pretty lauded British playwright. She worked on Succession. She has another big show coming up, which I forget. She wrote that movie Lady Macbeth uh, with Florence Pugh. Um, she's just like one of those sort of playwright people who has made a pretty seamless and fruitful transition into television, um, and film to some extent. And so, uh, yeah, just, I would keep an eye on her because I think she's going to become something of a brand name, uh, in the way that, you know, some, but very few TV creators are. Yeah. She did uh, Normal
3: People, which was her big, I'd say, breakout as in terms of something she Took the reins from Sally Rooney, like in real time, because they were, I think, the only writers on that season, uh, that limited series. And then, yeah, she's she's been working pretty constantly and very successfully ever since then.
0: Well, one more new show we wanted to get to um, its right around the corner and from not a uh, new creator name, but a very familiar one, David E. Kelly. Um, he is the creator behind Love and Death, the HBO series that um, is telling the same true crime story as Candy, which you might remember from Hulu last year with uh, Elizabeth Olsen as Candy Montgomery, who uh, definitely uh, murdered her uh, neighbor and church fellow churchgoer with an axe, um, but kind of had a whole trial to argue why uh, maybe she was justified. She was not um, sent to jail for it. Um it's, uh, it's very strange that it's a retelling of a story we just saw last year. I've watched two episodes of it. Um Jesse Plemons plays kind of her unlikely affair partner in a really interesting way. Um I think there's there's a lot to argue for it, but it does feel like it might get overshadowed by another show that just did the same thing a year ago. Um, but David, you had something to point out about the timing of when it's premiering because it's uh, it's coming out on thursday, april twenty seventh. um and uh, why is that date significant?
3: Well, because Love and Death will finish its run right before or right at May 31st, which uh, in the new rules set out by the TV Academy means that it's the last date for an episode to be considered. So it used to be that if you premiered the bulk of your episodes before the end of May, which is considered the end of the eligibility period, um, then the rest of the season, whether it aired in June or even July, if you had a really long season, uh, would still be considered As part of that season. So, you know, if you think of like, say, Hack season one from a couple years ago, it was nominated, you know, and, you know, Jane Addams for the finale for guest actress, she would not have been eligible. Um, And they would carry over to the next year's eligibility. Um,
0: That's where the weirdness really comes up.
3: Yes, because you can't have a full season considered unless it all premieres before the end of eligibility, which makes a certain degree of sense. Because it did start to get really messy where you'd have um, like Stranger Things has episodes competing this year because of this rule um, in a different kind of way. Um, whereas now it's going to be more standardized from one season to the next, uh, assuming networks follow suit. So one of my favorite examples from this season is uh, Succession. People guessed the premiere date when this rule change came out because it will air its series finale at the end of May. So March 26 was the pretty much the latest it could start. And um, obviously Succession does not want its series finale to not be ineligible when yeah. its final season is being voted on. So um, that's all goes into this pot of we have a really, really, really crowded April, particularly. <laughs> we, we always do. And we've talked about this uh, on this podcast over the last few years, but May is going to be a little bit quieter where you have all these shows ending their runs as opposed to about half of those late spring premieres often just kind of gearing up then.
0: Yeah, I was looking at trying to figure out what is coming in May. Like HBO will also have White House Plumbers, which I guess is a limited series and will be done in time. It's five episodes maybe. Yeah,
1: it'll be um, done in time.
0: And then Reality, which is a TV movie, which is very interesting for us in our continued interest in the um, TV movie category since it's an adaptation of a very successful off-roadway play with Sydney Sweeney. Um, but yeah, we'll pretty much just have uh, Holdovers airing at that point. Um, until the Idol premieres in June, and then we start the whole cycle all over again.
3: (laughs) Another, like a different kind of example is on Apple. Um, They have the show Platonic with Rose Byrne and Seth Rogen, which, you know, Apple campaigns everything. So (laughs) I was surprised we hadn't heard about the show at all in terms of this Emmy season when I saw that date. And I only had to remember that because of this eligibility rule, those episodes will be eligible next season because of the change. So it goes both ways. Now May premieres, are not necessarily going to be competing this year, which was not the case before.
0: Yeah. I mean, if we see The Bear, for example, succeed at the Emmys this year, like maybe we get to obsess over this calendar a little bit less, that like the year-round Emmy eligibility really can work for certain shows. But it it certainly is a gamble to try and assume that voters will remember your show for a full year.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's borne out more of late that... It doesn't hurt to premiere early and have that word of mouth and stick around in voters' minds. I think last year we saw all those true crime shows cannibalizing each other and just not really getting many nominations.
0: All, with, all of which tried to premiere really late in the uh, in the voting period, yeah.
3: Um, yeah, like you had The Staircase getting the lead acting nominations for Colin Firth and Tony Collette, but some of them didn't get anything. Some of them only got that, including The Staircase um which despite really big campaigns whereas you had like inventing anna getting a bunch of nominations or Pam and Tommy which premiered earlier in the year and were not as well received yeah. um so it just it just depends but i do wonder if this rule change makes it a little easier for the late spring shows to to find their way in i'm looking now at hbo's calendar and truly you have White House Plumbers ending on May 29th. Barry ending on May 28th. Succession ending on May 28th. I assume Love and Death is in the late 20s as well. So it's very um, across the board. That's going to be a chaotic week.
0: (laughs) I like the chaotic energy bringing to close out Memorial Day weekend.
2: Yeah, everyone is rushing to open their Tony shows too, because that cutoff is this week. Um, (laughs) To that Mm -hmm. end, I got a last minute invite to see the Jodie Comer show, uh, which she is incredible in
0: ooh uh, she oh, talks alone on that.
2: stage for an hour and 40 minutes um, and I sat b- uh, behind Melissa McCarthy and Richard Curtis
0: uh wow that's a uh, quite a combo um,
2: well they're making a movie together so
0: oh I didn't know that um, that's a good preview for your Tony special episode coming up uh, so for more for more Richard on the Tonys come back in June
2: well yes we're gonna talk about that in a full episode with some special guests but um, it was darkly amusing afterward. To play, I, I turned to what my, the friend I, I went to the show with and I said, well, RIP Jessica Chastain's Tony win this year. Uh, I don't know that anyone is going to beat Jodie Comer uh, in a performance that's already won an Olivier. Wow. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson.
1: And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next
2: up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our Chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.
0: Well, Richard, let's keep you going um, away from the Tonys, but back to movies, because you reviewed Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, which is out this week. You heard Hillary talking to the director, Kelly Freeman Craig, on this podcast earlier this week. I can't wait to see this movie. The book means very much to me. Um, it sounds like it's just a total hit.
2: It's very well done. It is well done in the way that the Babysitter's Club Netflix show <gasps> Gone Too Soon was well done. It's just, it's sensitive. It's smart. It's funny. It talks to kids and tween teenagers on their own level without pandering. It's not schmaltzy. You know, it's just, it's, it feels like a Judy Bloom book. And, you know, I guess I should have had faith that it would be because Kelly Fremen Craig, who adapted it and directed it, she, her last film was the uh, Edge of Seventeen, a great teen movie with Haley Steinfeld from a few years ago um, that uh, won an award at New York Film Critics Circle for best first feature and, um, and uh, so it's great to see her with her next film. Um, and I, I think you know all the kids are great, but I think that Rachel McAdams as Margaret's mother uh, is just such a standout. Um, it's such a she doesn't really act that much these days. You know, she'll pop up in something here and there, but her performance in Margaret is just like a really great reminder of just how appealing she is, and uh, she's so well suited to the tone of this movie. So it's a, it's pretty exciting to. Um, To be back with her and be back with, uh, you know, a beloved book for so many.
0: I hope teens see it. Like, I know that the book has so much meaning for people our age and even older. Um, I have no idea what it takes to get teens to go see movies, unless it's like the Super Mario movie. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I, I really want this movie to find... I haven't seen it yet, but I feel like I want this movie to find its audience.
2: I mean, one concern that I hate that I have is that, like, we are just in such a weird period of, like... I mean, calling it discourse feels too elevated, but of just, like constant nattering about like what is appropriate for children and what is appropriate to depict. And it's like, these are experiences that people go through like, and, and, but I think there is going to be some weird sensitivity about some of the stuff in the books in the movie, as there has been for Judy Bloom's books since she started writing, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's, of course, that's come roaring back of, of late um, with books getting taken off library shelves and, and things like that. Um, so I hope that some of that doesn't distract from this movie. Um, My suspicion, although I'm very glad it's getting a theatrical release, is that it will have a great life um, on any kind of streaming service, wherever it lands, much in the same way that a book, you know, that's at a library can be discovered over and over again by many, over a period of, you know, many years. So, um, whatever the film does at the box office, I think that kids, and yes, with or without their parents' knowledge, might (laughs) seek it out and, I think, get something out of it, because it it is... um, it's it's not the book. The book is the book, but like it comes close to capturing that sort of, um, you know, vital quality.
0: I mean, the book was at least 20 years old before I read it. So like yeah. the timelessness of it is really inarguable, I think.
2: Now I just want the Summer Sisters miniseries. That's that's what I'm <laughs> mm-hmm. really holding out for in the, the
0: Bloomverse. Can we shout out also the publicity tour that Judy Bloom has been on? Like, I followed her on Twitter forever, and she's usually, like, tweeting about, like, being in Key West and making it sound like the best place on Earth. Um, <laughs> yeah. But she's been, like, doing interviews. She, she got, like, misconstrued as a, like, J.K. Rowling supporter and then, like, mm-hmm. came out with this great statement uh, using the word bullshit about uh, what she actually meant to say. Um, it's just it's been such a treat having her out in the public eye.
2: Yeah. And she yeah. has not lost any of that tenacity. You know, no. she's she's still the same old Judy Bloom and, and a very and it's it's wonderful hearing from someone who has been dealing with this shit for fifty fucking years <laughs> to be like this book band thing, oh my god, like I can't believe we're back here again. She's uh-huh. gone through like three cycles of this at this point. So she knows of what she speaks. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Well Richard, are you there got it's me, Margaret, Did not make your list of the best films of 2023 so far, which is no knock on that movie because no, no, no. Um, you have no. some really excellent stuff on there. Um, it's published now. I think it's, a, it's early for you to be doing this, but it's very helpful for me as a resource of like, all right, what do I start with? So um, how did you manage to, to get this list going so early and, and what are the highlights?
2: Well, the idea, sort of, that was, you know, come up with by the VF, you know, brain trust was (laughs) that like this can be a rolling thing. So this list will keep kind of changing and getting added to, and things will be subtracted from it as the year goes on. So people have a sort of resource throughout the year to look at, like, oh, I I want to watch something good. What should I watch? And hopefully they can just go to this uh, this post. Um, But yeah, at the moment. Um, I have uh, the great Kelly Reichardt film Showing Up is on there um, maybe to people's surprise I have Scream 6 on there which ha- having hated Scream 5 I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I liked the follow-up to that um, some movies that were uh, technically I guess eligible for critic stuff last year like Return to Soul um, and Tori and Lakita but a movie that I was sort of surprised to find myself putting on it but the more I thought about it is a movie that's actually opening this week uh, which is called The Eight Mountains. Um, I saw it at Cannes last year. Um, it's based on an Italian novel. It's directed, it's co-directed by Felix von Groningen, which, who I believe made Beautiful Boy, mm-hmm. and his partner, I think, in life and work, Charlotte Vandermeer, Um And it's this, Really novelistic. I mean, it's based on a novel story of male friendship from early adolescence well into adulthood. Uh, Luca Marinelli is one of the actors playing the adult versions of these kids, um, set in the Italian Alps, and it's tragic, it's beautiful, it's touching. I have some issues with maybe how it ends, but like for the most part, it's um, just a really robust drama, you know, of male friendship and set, you know, the, the filmmaking is so beautiful with the mountains and everything. And yes, there are attractive, scruffy Italian men in it. I'm, not, I'm only human.
0: <laughs> uh, a movie that your list highlighted for me that I can't believe it I didn't know about is that the director of um, You Won't Be Alone, a movie that you got me to watch last year, Richard from Sundance. He um, had another movie out this year. I didn't even know about it. And it looks... Uh, I know.
2: Incredible. I think the people at Focus are doing good things for the most part, but they have not handled this guy's movies that well. Uh, Of an Age premiered, I think, at at the Melbourne Film Festival last year and then had a really kind of unceremonious American release in March. Um, And it's a much more grounded film than You Won't Be Alone, which is, you know, a period piece about witches and stuff. Um, This is just about uh, pretty contemporary sort of dawning gay romance between a kid who's just graduated from high school and his friend's older brother. Um, there is a time jump. It has, it feels a little bit like weekend in its first half. And then the second half is a little bit different. And um, you know, Goran Solevsky who, who made the film, he's Macedonian, Australian. Um, and there is, I'm, I'm learning watching this film and, and reading interviews uh, with him, uh, that there is a big kind of Balkan community in Australia. Uh, Serbians and Macedonians and other people and and um, so it has a real sense of like culture and place in that way while also telling yes a universal story that a lot of queer people can probably relate to so part of the reason to put it on the list even though I I sort of have some quibbles again with the ending of the film is that like I like you said I don't I don't think a lot of people know that it exists and so yeah. hopefully its placement on my list or other lists will uh, bring some attention to it because I believe it's on peacock because focus is a universal company
0: yeah i mean that's in the age we're in where we've talked about a lot where you don't know where to find something and theatrical windows are shorter than maybe they should be it is nice to read a list like this of yours where it's like tiny theatrically released movies that may have played near me for a week and are gone but um a lot of them are really accessible um which is a really good benefit for movies like that i think
2: yeah and i think the last thing i want to highlight. You should I mean, it's just there's 10 movies on the list, but again, it will be added to over the course of the coming months. Um, is how to blow up a pipeline, which I don't think we really talked about on here before. Yeah. Um, it's a sort of eco thriller, an activist film about a group of young kids who, well, are you know making good on the <laughs> film's title. Uh, <laughs> and so it's kind of a heist movie, but not a heist, but a, a explosion. Um, that's told in this very youthful sort of Gen Z vernacular that hopefully makes it feel that much more urgent to, I think, a younger generation of people than me who are coming of age now into adulthood and are like, what the hell is going on? No one has done anything about this. And looking at the sort of more peaceful means of climate activism, protesting against uh, fossil fuel industry, bad actors, um, and saying, well, maybe, you know, in the form of a film, this is the sort of, real radical solution and i think it's kind of fascinating to ponder that question while also watching just a pretty good thriller
0: i feel like i have so much to watch david and rebecca i feel like this time of year we're so wrapped up in tv this makes me miss movies yeah. <laughs> this is, i know it's taking gonna be back. A, a very helpful list thanks
1: richard
3: <laughs> i did i did see um how to blow up a pipeline they that and showing up were out in the same week and that was a really oh I that's think, a exciting very rewarding for, <laughs> for american movies
0: I went to see Super Mario this past weekend which was very fun in its own way but um, Richard I can't believe you did make your list you're going to get a bunch of angry emails probably
2: there are a lot of pipes in that so it's sort of similar (laughs) to Pipeline
0: there might be one that gets blown up I can't, I can't remember now that does it for this week's show. Um, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find Richard's uh, ongoing updated list of the best films of uh, 2023. I assume it won't be changed by the time people hear this, but maybe no, in a month no. or two.
2: No, the next change will be this summer, I'm sure. I think, yeah.
0: more, Many more great things to look forward to. Um, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VFAwardsInsider. And on our own, I'm Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David.
3: David Canfield, 97.
0: And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for what we say when awards voters don't do what we want them to do goes to Rebecca Ford. They're the worst rich people.